Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to Isaiah chapter 8. The background is that Isaiah has boldly stood up to both the king and the nation and announced the nation's future, the future for Judah and Jerusalem, the future for northern Israel and Syria. He has made this a matter of public record. He has established the prophecy publicly so that it's verifiable, and he's given leadership to the church, to the people of God, to the holy nation of that day. And such moral and spiritual leadership doesn't go uncontested. And therefore, when we come to verse 11, we find that God intervenes on Isaiah's personal behalf. This whole section of the book of Isaiah, of course, is governed by the great vision that the prophet received that we find in chapter 6. There we find him overwhelmed visually by the Lord. He says he saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is his paramount grasp and grip on the greatness of God. But here in chapter 8, verse 11, we find him overwhelmed physically and verbally as God takes hold of him and then speaks to him personally, individually. The, the word means to seize. The Lord spoke thus to me by his strong hand upon me. Yahweh takes hold of this man, takes a grip of this man. When I was looking at this word this week and trying to imagine what it felt like, I instinctively remembered occasions when, as a little boy, I nearly walked out into the pa the pass the, a passing car, the front of a passing car, and I felt this strong seizure by a big working man's hand grip my little hand and pull me back onto the pavement, or oh, sorry, onto the sidewalk, Freudian slip, onto the sidewalk and pull in the direction that I should be going. That's the idea, actually, that we have here in the use that Isaiah makes of this word. John Calvin says it's a beautiful metaphor alluding to fathers and teachers who, when their word is proving difficult to take or when we're frightened or tempted to draw back or go down the wrong path, the path of obedience, takes us by the hand, holds us fast, that we might walk in his way together. It's a great picture. It's a picture of tough tenderness, the tender and tough hand of God taking hold of this man. But what Isaiah wants us to know is that God takes his hand, God puts his strong hand upon him, in order that he might speak to him. And that really is the great message of this section. And uh, we can summarize what the section is about by saying this. The lesson is that reverence for God will bring us into an experience of God and will lead us to confidence in God. First of all, reverence for God. There's the first section. The Lord puts his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people.
people. This people. Who are these people? These people are not the people of the world. These people are not the nations round about Israel. These people are the people of the theocracy. These people are the people of the holy nation. These people are the people of God. They are, if you will, the church of Isaiah's day. What he's saying to him, to him is this, that he is warned not to walk in the way of this people. This people had got themselves into a state of rebellion against God. And God says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to what they're saying, what they're talking about. Don't put any weight on their assessment of what is going on at this time in their history. Because they're so far away from where God would be. Now, the word conspiracy here is not defined. We have no idea, actually, what he is talking about here. Well, scholars have lots of ideas, but when you look at them all, there's so many of them, it's obvious that we don't have an idea, really, what he's referring to. He could be referring to the fact that there, this Syrian-Ephraim alliance to the north uh, was uh, making all kinds of noises in order to come and attack little Judah, although by this stage perhaps that has already finished, and now the Assyrians are in the are on the horizon and there's worries about what the Assyrians are up to and what deal was made by the king with the Assyrians and, and so on. Perhaps more likely it is that the people have evaluated the ministry of Isaiah the prophet and have come to the conclusion that here is Isaiah the prophet of God, but he is undermining confidence in the regime, undermining confidence in the power of the king and in the policies of the king, the foreign policy of the king, for example. He has warned the king that he must not get into an alliance with Assyria. He has told the king that the Syrian-Ephraim alliance to the north will go under anyway, because God is going to do that. And it may very well be that the talk of conspiracy is the buzzing around, the mumbling and discontent, the disgruntlement among the people of God with the prophet himself. Whatever it may be, whatever it may be, God comes to Isaiah and he says to him, Isaiah, don't fear, don't dread. He uses the same language he'd used himself when he'd been speaking to the king, recorded in chapter 7, verse 4, when he'd said to the king, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, don't let your heart be faint. Now God comes to him, uses the same verbs and says, Isaiah, you preach this to the king, let me preach this to your heart. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread. God comes to this man, this prophet of his, and he warns him about an unhealthy fear. What is it the fear of? It's the fear of the multitude. It's the fear of the people. It's a fear of what people are saying. A fear of what people are complaining about or grumbling about or moaning about are conspiring against him. He comes to this man of God and he says, I don't want you to factor into your life fear of people, fear of what people are doing or saying. Because that is an unhealthy fear. Now you can take this and you can, you can apply it in a number of ways. You can apply it to the church of Jesus Christ that finds itself 
often in a situation where it's tempted to forget the bigness and sovereignty of God, whenever it's confronted by calamities and disasters, whenever the church sees numbers dropping or young people departing the faith, sees the church not being taken seriously in the academy or in the media. And you can see in those circumstances that every time the church faces that, there's a plethora of prophet solutions, each of which, each of which leads to a, a, or involves a reductionist or relativist approach to the church, to worship, to truth, as we urge each other along to be more relevant, less strident, more inclusive, less dogmatic. The church sometimes listens to itself. It listens to the wrong people. It listens to the wrong leaders. And then, of course, the church finds itself in a society where there are health scares and environmental warnings and cultural shifts. And the ways these things move from being information to fact and then impedes any real and reasonable response. The same kind of spirit of the age. The way of this people. The prophet is being urged not to think like the crowd, not to be sucked into the current panic born of unbelief. But I think the primary application of this is very personal to Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, or God is saying to Isaiah, you find yourself surrounded by all kinds of speculations and accusations and misconceptions and misrepresentations. Do not fear and do not be in dread about these things. Maybe you find yourself as a Christian believer, maybe you find yourself on a committee tasked with the responsibility of dealing with a situation where the temptation is to weight the response in favor of the influential rather than the victim. Maybe you find yourself as a minister or an elder in a presbytery where the flow of that presbytery's work is moving out of a, a, dis, a commitment to the Word of God and more into a kind of relativistic, situationalistic approach to the Bible, and you're making a stand for truth. Maybe you're the only person in your office, on the team you work with, that has an eye to the integrity, business integrity, of the corporation that you work with. Maybe you're a teacher in the academy, and you're one of the few who has any sense that there is an ultimate truth by which all other truths are to be measured. Maybe you're a professor in a seminary, and you're one of the few who believes in and is committed to and is gripped by and directed by biblical inerrancy and sufficiency. You see, the temptation to capitulate to the fears and speculations and to the ideas of the crowd takes place on committees and in conversations and on sessions and in churches and in offices and in councils and in political parties. We are tempted all the time to fear. Isaiah is warned about a fear that could grip him. Do you know one of the things that is constantly a temptation, especially in 
among the people of God, and that's really who Isaiah is finding himself, among the people of God. Here's the fundamental temptation that comes in all the time. We don't want to threaten the fellowship. We don't want to spoil the harmony. We don't want to touch the unity. We focus on peace and quiet and on the status quo. And it becomes true what Winston Churchill, I think it was, said. For evil to triumph, it is enough that good people do or say nothing. You're tempted to be silent when you should speak. To keep your head down when you should be sticking your neck out. To acquiesce with the majority. But faith takes a stand and leaves the consequences to God. It may cost you your job, your career, your well-being. God comes to this man and he says, Do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread of them. Because there's a healthy fear that that counters an unhealthy fear. What is that healthy fear? What will keep you from buckling under, wimping out, and fitting in? But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. If you have to give your attention to anything, then it shouldn't be to the rumors and murmurs of a disgruntled, unbelieving people, nor the threats and schemes of powerful and influential people, or the fear and dread of disaster and catastrophe. He says, your eye should be on the Lord of hosts. The Lord whose very title talks about supreme, unbeatable power. The God who's revealed his purposes, which are there for all of those who he he knows to trust him. What Isaiah is saying to these people is, you're afraid of what people can do to you. You're afraid of what foreign powers can do to you. Let me tell you, all these threats from foreign powers are actually... From God, He's behind them. He is using these foreign powers to judge His church. All your worries, all your fears of chaos and catastrophe and disaster and diminishing numbers have actually come from the throne of God. He's behind them on. Do you think for one minute, do you think for one minute that God who is the Lord of hosts has not factored into His planning and purposes, the very things that grip you with fear. He is the Lord of hosts. He is Yahweh of hosts. Ignoring Him, disbelieving Him, forgetting Him, not factoring Him in doesn't make Him go away. God is saying to Isaiah, the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. An old hymn puts it like this. Fear him, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. And what he's saying is, you see, that what nerves the arm for fight, what toughens the backbone to make decisions that are unpopular, to resist the flow, is that God is bigger to you than man. That God is greater to you than man is. Him you shall regard as holy. 
He had been in that temple, you remember. He had seen the Lord high and lifted up. He'd been gripped by the hugeness, by the highness, by the holiness of God. And that vision of who God is in all His splendor and glory had gripped His imagination and His heart and everything else in His life, every other assault in His life, every other threat and danger in His life was minimized in direct proportion to the greatness and highness and glory of God. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Regard God as holy. See Him as different. Think great thoughts about God. Let that dominate your thinking. In the New Testament, Peter quotes this very section of Isaiah. He's speaking to those who are suffering because of persecution or marginalization or ridicule because of their faith. He says it into the lives of those who find themselves like you do sometimes in, in positions where you have to make a stand for what is right. And what is popular? What is right? And what is simply a fudge? And this is what he says. Listen, this is Peter. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Quoting Isaiah. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread them. Instead, he goes on to say this. Listen. He goes on to say this, quoting now the second part. He says... In your hearts, regard Christ as Christ the Lord as holy. He identifies the Lord that Isaiah is talking about with the Lord that Isaiah saw in the temple that day. Jesus, you remember, was the one he saw in the temple. Jesus, we're told that in John chapter 12. And here is Isaiah now, and he, or Peter now, and he's looking back at this passage in Isaiah, and he's saying, whenever it says, regard the Lord as holy, regard Yahweh as holy, remember, it's Yahweh Jesus. Jehovah Jesus. Regard Him as holy. And if you're going to be terrified about anybody, be terrified about the holy, majestic, glorious Jesus. Reverence for God. Jesus put it like this. Don't fear him who can destroy the body. Don't fear the one who can fire you or scandalize you or marginalize you or minimize you. Fear the one who can cast both your body and your soul into hell. Reverence for God leads to an experience of God. Look at how he puts this. The Lord of hosts, let him be, you shall honor his holy, let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone. Whether or not you regard God as holy, you see, will determine what you experience of God. He will either be to you a sanctuary or a snare. Look at this. Yahweh is sanctuary, first of all. For people who sanctify Him, who regard Him as holy, who give Him supreme place of importance in their lives, 
He will be a sanctuary, that is, a place of refuge and peace. This word, holy sanctuary, comes from, or is used in Exodus 25 and verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So the word sanctuary has the idea of the very innermost holy of holies in the temple or the tabernacle. And what that represents is the place where God is. Intensely, he is there. God's everywhere, of course, but he is most intensely in his sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, where he dwells. So whenever he talks about the sanctuary, he's thinking not just of a place of safety. It is a place of safety because that is where God dwells. You remember that overshadowing this particular uh, bit of teaching in Isaiah is what he's introduced to us in chapter 7, the birth of a child born of a virgin who will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Well, now he's turning that around and he's saying, if you reverence Christ as God, if you reverence Yahweh of hosts as the Lord, not only will God be with you, but you will be with God. You will be in the sanctuary with him. He will build a wall a temple wall, if you will, around you so that it's you and him, or us and him, the people of God and their God, safe, secure, with him present with us, present with us, and us present with him. Now, does, does that mean that the people who reverence Christ as Lord and who are in the sanctuary, as it were, with God, does that mean that they don't face trouble or calamity or disaster? Of course they will. But they will face it with a particular view of God and a particular relationship with God. Heidelberg Catechism is a very helpful reference point here. It says this, that uh, when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, I'm saying that the Eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, and that that God is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. He goes on to say, I can trust that this God will provide whatever I need for body or soul, and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he's almighty God, and he desires to do this because he is a faithful Father. Get to know that. In the swirling storm of uncertainties, the believer can rest secure in God. In the whirlwind of trial, he finds a place of safety in the presence, in the sanctuary of God. In the language of a hymn that we're going to sing later, walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to defend. But if you don't reverence Christ as Lord, he becomes a snare to you. Now, you see this. There are not two different lords here, not two different gods. It isn't that God changes himself, but your reaction to God determines your experience of God. If you don't reverence him as Lord, then you will discover that your real enemy, your real enemy, it's not something external, nor is it anybody internal. Your real enemy becomes God himself. 
he becomes, well, look at the language, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. If you reject him, if you don't reverence him, if you don't honor him, these five verbs describe the destruction. You'll keep colliding with him, keep tripping over him, even be crushed by him. Whether or not you reverence God will determine your experience of God. And in the New Testament, Jesus takes this very language and he describes people's reaction to him. He describes the Jews' reaction to him and he says, my coming into the world, my very incarnation, my very being here in the world is a stone of offense to these people. Paul can take this idea and he applies it to Christ crucified. And he says the very idea of a crucified God is a stone of stumbling to those who will not come to him. Peter, Peter applies it in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8. He applies it to the believers. He says the honor is to those who believe, but for those who don't believe, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word even as they were destined to do. Well, reverence from God, for God can lead to an experience of God as your sanctuary. And will, in the end, provide confidence in God. So let me put it like this. Notice how this flows in the passage. We come to verse 16. Those who regard God as holy, who set apart Christ as Lord, have God himself as their sanctuary. They have more. They have something else. They have something fundamental. Sheltering in the Lord, they have testimony, teaching, and a word. That's verse 16 and verse 20. They have testimony, teaching, and the word. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among the disciples. The focus now, you notice, Isaiah is now speaking directly to those who follow him or follow the Lord and have gathered around him. Now, these people are different from the crowd. These people are not the people that have just been mentioned. These people are the believers. And he has something for them. What does he have for them? He has a written record of God's revelation. He has God's Word written. The revealed Word of God, now written, is bound up, is sealed. In other words, officially, formally, affirmed and attested as the revealed Word of God. I think what happens is this. Isaiah has been preaching. His disciples have been hearing it. This is all put down in writing. It's read aloud, and they agree, yeah, that's what you said, that's what you said, yeah, that's what you said, yes, that's what you said. In other words, they confirm that what he's been preaching is now written. This is the Word of God written. And this is what Isaiah gives to them. He gives to them his, God's Word, written, and that becomes the basis and the ground of their confidence. Their confidence does not rest on their experience of God. Their experience of God rests on the Word of God. The Word of God. They reverence God because of the Word of God. 
their experience of God is built in the fact they believe the word of God. Because the God with whom Isaiah has to do and with whom we have to do is a God who talks. He is a talking God. He speaks words, not just words in your head. Those words have been written down so that you can check it, you can test it, you can approve it, you can analyze them, you can listen to sermons, you can, you can say he talked a lot of rubbish or he spoke the truth. You can do all of that. Because you have in your hands the written record of the revelation of God. God's Word written. And these disciples of his had heard Isaiah. They'd had ears to hear the Word of God. And what we find here already, you see, is is something happening that happens again in Jesus' ministry. We find the church within the church, the Israel within Israel, the people who've not only heard from God, but they've heard him. They've not only believed in God, they've believed God. They've believed God. Taken His Word seriously. They've revealed, they've received the truth of God. They've not hardened their hearts. They've not been willful. They've not pushed it away. They've not said, silence the prophet. We don't want to hear. They've believed God. And do you see the effect of this? Look at this. This is why they have confidence. Because they've got the testimony, sealed the teaching, They're able to say, verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. They're living in difficult days. They're living in days when God is silent and where God is unseen and God is invisible. There's nothing else. As they look around the nation, there's no great movement towards the living God. The the, the synagogues and the temple are not full of people uh, clamoring to hear the word of God. They're not there. There's no popular movement of revival or whatever that is indicating that God is at work. He's quiet. He's silent. He's turned his back on Judah. Judah is going to go into exile. Things are going to get worse. And in those dark days, those dark days, Isaiah and these believers are waiting. Two words are used for waiting in this text. One means waiting with patience. The other means waiting with confidence. They're waiting. They're waiting with patience. They'll have to endure all this. But they're waiting with confidence because they believe God's word. They believe that God will act. They believe that God will turn up. Eventually, it may be way beyond their lifetime. But they believe the promise. God is with us. God is with us. And then Isaiah speaks. He speaks as Christ, either as a type of Christ, or perhaps this is the speaker at the beginning of the sentence. Verse 16, it's the Lord that's speaking. Maybe this is the Lord again speaking. Certainly it's flagged up with the big word, behold, wherever you use that, something of major, major, major spiritual significance is about to be said. Behold, I and the children you have given me. Signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. John's gospel picks up this idea Jesus, over and over again, says, these are the children that you have given me, the people you have given me. I don't pray for the world. I pray for those that you've given me. Jesus sees in these words his own 
experience. I think that's the way we're meant to understand it. Here is Jesus speaking, or Isaiah speaking as a type of Christ. And he's speaking of the church, the believing community, the, the, the remnant, the remnant of people who believe, that trust, whose focus, unlike everybody else, everybody else around, around him in Isaiah's day, is kind of focused on the exterior. You know, they, they're, they're thinking in terms of Judah and Jerusalem, the physical real estate there in Palestine. They're thinking of the temple, that is the building. Their focus is on what they can see. But Isaiah, you see, his focus is on Zion, Mount Zion. Mount Zion, where there used to be a fortress and where the temple was built, that Zion becomes in Isaiah a kind of code word for the heavenly Jerusalem, for the city of God that is permanent. And unmovable, Zion. Zion, which is the city that is peopled with the people of God, the church of God, in its ultimate expression of perfection. And increasingly in the book of Isaiah, we'll discover that Zion, when he speaks about it, is not simply talking about the city of Jerusalem, but the city of God. And Isaiah and his friends see this picture. And here the Lord Jesus in Hebrews takes this and applies it to himself. Behold, I and the children you have given to me. And Isaiah leaves us with that picture of this heavenly city. We're going to stop there and leave the rest out and uh, revisit it again. Because you kept me going down rabbit holes. and It's your fault. But I want you to notice where Isaiah gets his confidence in God from. He gets his confidence from the Word of God. In fact, he goes on to say, challenging those who would run here and there to the experts of their day who were the necromancers, who, who chirp and mutter and, and uh, the mediums and so on. They want somebody who will kind of minister or come in between them and give them a kind of specialized, special divine or spiritual word and so on. He says... People should inquire of their God. Where do they inquire of their God? They'd inquire of their God, verse 20, in the teaching and the testimony and the word. Actually, there is no definite article. It's in the word of God itself. The word that is testimony. God giving the record. His testimony of who he is. God is speaking. The teaching, what God wants his people to do, how they want, how they're to live, Torah. The word, that is the living word of the living God. God comes and he speaks and gives us this word, and this word has been written. And Isaiah says that's the basis of his confidence in God. So what differentiates the believer from the unbeliever in the world? Ultimately, it's this. We have been given a word from outside of ourselves. It hasn't arisen from our speculation or our study or our research or, or whatever. This word has come at us, to us, from outside of us. 
It has, it has broken the space-time barrier. God has spoken. What God has spoken has been written. Isn't it good that it has been written? Because then we're not at the vagaries of individual speculation or inspiration or whatever it may be. We can go back again and again and again as Isaiah makes sure we can do to read what has been written from God. And he's given us a testimony about himself, teaching to direct our path, a word that we can hold on to and with that word hidden in our hearts, we can face an uncertain future. We can overcome inner fears. We can take the stuff, the tough stands. We can, armed with his precious promises, Run to that shrine and find that God is there and that we are with God. And that God is our refuge and strength. And that God is our shelter in a time of trouble. Ultimately, the answer of this passage is in the incarnation of Christ. He is the one who gathers us around him. In fact, in Hebrews, this passage is used in that respect. He became flesh and blood so that he might become our brother, so he may become, we might become one of his own brothers and sisters and share in the glory of Zion that is being prepared for us. Well, may Lord God bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in these days when we find ourselves facing all kinds of ethical, spiritual, theological problems. When people are raising questions, and our temptation is to fudge, to compromise, to cave in, to be nice, to not say the hard things. When we're confronted with decisions it will be unpopular, perhaps. When influential people are being given the freedom to do what they want and the, the innocence and the little people are being stepped on and walked over. And you call us to be faithful to you, faithful to your word, faithful to your word as it speaks both about doctrine and duty, about truth and error, we pray that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and let his word settle down and remain rich and deep in our innermost being to the praise of your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.